when all I possess is grief, God be then my treasure. One of the things we want to do here at our church is teach you songs for the night. Songs for the darkness. Because that's what the psalms in our Bible do. That song is Psalm 42 and 43 put to music. Why are you cast down my soul? It calls us to put our hope in God in the darkness as the waves wash over us. And if you're not in that moment in your life right now, that's a gift. You will be. The waves are coming for us all. The greatest wave is death. And you know what our hope in that moment is? We serve a king who lives. The only one who's defeated the grave. And he's coming back for all who put their hope in him. Before I pray, I'm just going to turn this mic up just a little bit. All right. Well, let's go to the Lord now in prayer. Father, I thank you for the gift of hope in Christ. I thank you that faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. I thank you for the certainty of the empty tomb of our risen King. I thank you for the certainty of the promise that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I thank you for the certainty of the promise of our risen Lord Jesus, who said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, and I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Be with us now, Lord Jesus, as we look at your word. I pray that we would learn what you have for us this morning. Help me to be clear and helpful in the things that we talk about. Jesus' name. Amen. Right, well, if you would, turn in your Bibles. We're going to be in Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12 today. I want to just start off with a question um, for you to think about as we gear up for this passage. Have you ever wondered why some followers of Jesus, some Christians, face incredible suffering in their lives, while other Christians seem at least to drift through life with relative ease and comfort. You ever notice that? Some Christians, their life is always in a state of just tragedy, hard things. And others, not so much. Some folks might chalk this type of dynamic up to what is commonly referred to as karma. Karma says that if you suffer a lot in your life, it's because you did something bad. 
the Eastern religions, it's because you did something bad in a previous life. If you did something really bad, you might come back as a bug or a scorpion. If you did something really good, then you're just a cow walking around the streets of India. Anyhow, I'm not here to give you a class on world religions. I just want you to think about that. Karma is the opposite of the gospel that we worship. We as Christians are given grace that we don't deserve through the Lord Jesus Christ. Karma is not the correct way to think about suffering in the Christian life. Now, I do want to say a qualification here. Obviously, actions do have consequences, right? If I drink poison and die, there's a reason for that. It's called chemistry. If I jump off a cliff and die, there's a reason for that. It's called gravity, right? If I give my life over to some sort of addiction, whether a food addiction or some other substance addiction, addiction or addiction to pornography or any number of sinful behaviors that increasingly consume my life, if you give yourself over to actions that are self-destructive, it will destroy your relationships. It will destroy your sleep quality. It will destroy your physical health. It will destroy your spiritual health. That's not karma. That's the consequences of living life in ways that ignore the moral laws and the wisdom of our Creator. But, if I pour out my life in service to others, and I seek to walk in regular repentance from sin, and if I live in allegiance to God and his word, word, and I'm a faithful Christian, yes, a sinner, but walking in repentance, asking for forgiveness regularly, and then my life hits the fan and I experience great suffering. What does that mean? Does that mean I failed God? Does that mean that God's now against me? That's what the book of Job is all about in our Bible. No, that's not what that means. Consider Jesus himself and all the suffering that he experienced, even up to death on a cross. No, there are many, many godly people who walk long on the path of suffering. And all of us are called to walk through the final river of death itself. Whether we take the bumpy path or the smooth paths. And for some, when they come to that final crossing into the next life, the river of death is like drifting off into a peaceful current. And for others, it's like being swept away by a torrential mudslide. But regardless, Everyone suffers in life, both the righteous and the unrighteous. And God has different paths and purposes and timing for us all. Our task as believers is to stay faithful to him and cling to him through it all. To preach to ourselves like we sang 
When all I possess is grief, God be then my treasure. As I read Acts 12 for you, we're going to start in a second, I want you to pay really close attention to something. In this story, we have two faithful apostles of the risen Lord Jesus. The Apostle James and the Apostle Peter. Both godly men. And one is murdered, and the other is miraculously rescued. If we were looking at this through the lens of karma, what would we say? Well, James must have done something to tick off his Lord, because he got killed. But Peter, he must have done something real good, because he's rescued. No, he's sleeping in the story. So, I, I want you to see this as we read through. It was about this time that King Herod, Acts 12, verse 1, arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword, beheaded. When he saw that this met with the approval of the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting Peter, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. That's 16 guys for one man. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was praying earnestly to God for him. Verse 6, the night before Herod was to bring to trial, bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. Remember this. Church earnestly praying through the night. Peter sleeping. Not a good one. Bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter on the side and woke him. Quick, get up. Follow me. Put your clothes on. Put, put on your clothes and your sandals. Oh, I, I skipped a verse. And the chains fell off Peter's wrist. Verse 8. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and your sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. So Peter followed him out of the prison. And he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. You, you ever have those dreams where... Well, I would have these dreams as a young child. My wife's not here, so I can tell this story. Um, where where I, I was going to the bathroom. You ever had that dream? And you walk down the hall to the bathroom, and then you wake up to find that it was not the bathroom. You're still in bed. <laughs> so this is kind of Peter thinks he's having one of those dreams. This is happening, but it's not happening. You know, you know what I mean? And then he's going to wake up, and he's still got the cold... Things. I mean, that would be a torturous dream. You have a dream that you're set free, but <laughs> too bad. You're still chained up. Well, verse 10, they passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. And it opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, 
he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, John Mark, where many people were gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter's at the door. <laughs> You're out of your mind, they told her. She's probably this little girl. I don't think she was that old. But she's so excited, she, you know, forgot to open the door. When she kept insisting that it was so, then they said, well, it must be his angel, his guardian angel, who looks like him. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. God answered prayer. Wow. We didn't think he would. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James, different James than the one who lost his life, and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said. Then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, well, there's only one solution. It's the guard's fault, right? So he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon, two big cities, important cities, actually, in the ancient world, huge trade hubs. And these, Herod had a fight with them about something. And they now joined together, these two cities, and sought an audience with them. They want to talk to him. After securing the support of Blastus, what a name, Blastus. Anybody know Blastus? Blastus, probably is how he, yeah. A, trust in per, a trusted personal servant of the king. So King Herod's servant, Blastus, Tyre and Sidon, hey, Blastus, we need your help. We want to make peace with Herod. Can you, can you help us? Can you hook us up with an audience? We, we need to talk to Herod. I know he doesn't like us. We're kind of on his bad side. But we need your help, Blastus. So Blastus sets it up, and, and they asked for peace in verse 20 and because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. Um, why would food supply be important? We just read about it in our last week's story. What was going around in the world? Famine! Oh, and in a famine, you might want to lay aside your differences if your people have no food. Herod kind of controls the grain trade in that day. Um, it all passed through Israel. So if Tyre and Sidon want grain, they better make peace with Herod. So on the appointed day, Herod comes in to say, we can be friends now, right? And he's got his... He's wearing his royal robes, and he sat on his throne, and he delivered a public address to the people. And so they want to butter him up, right? Um, and so verse 22, they shouted, This is the voice of a god and not a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down. He was eaten by worms and died. I'll talk more about what that is in a little bit. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. So, there's four pieces to this story. They're on the back of your bulletin. Four pieces we're going to work through. First, Herod strikes the church. 
Second, Peter's rescued. Third, the Lord strikes Herod. And fourth, God's word spreads. So in between, after these two stories of striking, God's word is spreading. The main idea, the Lord is able to rescue his people and defeat his enemies and spread his word. The Lord is able to rescue his people, defeat his enemies, and spread his word. So part one, Herod strikes the church, verses one to five. In these first few verses, we see Herod leap into action against the Christians in Jerusalem. This is a different Herod here than the Herod that helps the Jews when they crucify Jesus. Herod the Tetrarch had arrested Jesus. Herod Agrippa I, because there was more Agrippas, had Peter arrested. Okay, So notice in verse 1 that Herod arrests some who belong to the church of Jesus. What's his goal in arresting them? To persecute them. The word used for persecution is the word harm, to harm them, to mistreat them. His goal is to do evil to the followers of Jesus. And they're, they're arrested. In verse 2, Herod puts James, who must have been one of the ones arrested, the brother of John, to death with the sword. So both James and John were sons of a man named Zebedee, and now James is dead. Death by the sword was most likely beheaded. Anybody remember who the other Herod beheaded in the stories in the Gospels? John the Baptist. Exactly. So in this place, James is in the position of John the Baptist, beheaded. Peter is in the position of Jesus now, arrested by Herod. And we'll see actually some connections there with Peter's arrest and Jesus' own arrest. So, the Jewish leaders are thrilled. <laughs> Good move, King Herod. He wasn't very popular among them in some ways, but he built them this beautiful, shiny temple. Herod wasn't even Jewish. He was an Edomite, descended of Esau. Not, not a great guy. And yet, they're very happy with him. The guy that the Roman Caesar had made in charge of their empire was anti-Christian. Which, if you're a Pharisee who hates, you're part of the Sanhedrin, the 70 people who ruled Israel, you don't like the Christian movement. So their hopes of eradicating the Jesus movement now have a, they're, they're now on steroids. <laughs> they are pumped. Because, remember, they, they recently had a big blow to all their hopes of eradicating the Jesus movement. They're like, A-team, with Saul, got converted. Jesus is like, you're on my team now. Okay? So they need some hope, right? Now they've got a king on their side. And they're thrilled. His potential, you've got to know this, Herod's potential to do massive harm to the church of Jesus so early in this stage was even greater than Saul's. What's all this? What, what's in this for Herod? Does he really care about Jesus and the teachings of the apostles? No, he doesn't care. It works out in your favor, though, if you're the leader of a bit of a rowdy nation of religious zealots and they really like you. That, 
works out good for you, right? If they like you, you won't have problems. If they don't like you, well, you better watch your back if you're Herod. Because the Jews are really good at assassinating people. So, just look what they did to Jesus. Uh, so this works out well. After killing James, Herod is like, man, I'm on a roll. So he locks up Peter, the biggest leader of the Christian movement at that time. Peter himself. And he puts him in jail. Right, high fives all around. Now, I want you to notice a few things about the language used in verses 3 and 4. Herod seizes Peter. See that? He, he does it during the festival of unleavened bread, which is a seven-day feast leading up to Passover. And his plans to bring Peter to trial and most likely kill him are after Passover. Luke is really careful in recording all these details. And the reason Luke is doing this is he wants you to see how closely the arrest of Peter parallels Jesus' arrest years before. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 22, verse 54, Jesus is seized. Same word used for Peter's seizure. While in the story about Jesus, Peter follows, when Jesus is seized in Luke 24, you know who follows at a distance? Watching Peter. And soon, Peter denies Jesus three times in that story. But not today. No, in our story, it's Peter who's seized because he won't deny Christ. <coughs> Another connection, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 22, verses 1 to 7, we learn that the betrayal and capture and seizure of Jesus is during the festival of unleavened bread. A seven-day festival leading up to Passover. And while Jesus was killed during Passover week, Peter's trial is set for after Passover. A little change there, but almost the same timeline. Peter, here the point is, Peter is walking in the steps of Jesus. Not following behind in fear like he did in the first arrest of Jesus, but walking in the steps of Jesus by faith. And now he's in jail. He's guarded by 16 soldiers. He's even chained to two of them. That's intense. wonder if he was telling me about Jesus. No, he's sleeping here, but why such a large number of apostles? Or, not apostles. There was a large number of apostles. Why such a large number of jailers guarding Peter? What would, does any of you have any guesses? In the book of Acts, we read about something that would make Herod nervous and he'd want maximum security. What, what would make him nervous, remember? Well, the resurrection of Jesus would be one, but in Acts chapter 5... There's a different jailbreak. Remember that in Acts 5? They lock all the Jewish apostles up. They're all in prison together, at least most of them. And an angel breaks them all out. And they come to bring them to trial the next day. And they're like, uh, where are they? And they're all in the temple preaching. So Herod's like, yeah, we're not having any repeats. If an angel's going to have to break these guys out, or whatever happened there, um, we're, he's going to have to kill all these soldiers. You know, We're going to chain him to soldiers and have 16 of them guarding the jail. No repeats. That's Herod's plan. No repeat jailbreaks. Now look at Peter's rescue. 
starting in verse 5, at the end of the verse, while he's in jail, the church of Jesus is gathering to pray for him. See that in verse 5? Earnestly. And we see this unpacked a little more in verse 12. If you look down to verse 12, the church is gathered together praying in the house of Mary, the, the mother of John Mark. The, John Mark was a cousin of Barnabas, who we read about in the previous story last week. So the church is praying. It's night. They're praying and praying, and they're praying earnestly. You see that in verse 5 at the end? This word earnestly is used only one other place by Luke. He uses it in his gospel when someone else prays earnestly through the night. Who in the gospel of Luke, near the end, prays earnestly through the night? Jesus. Yeah. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he is praying earnestly through the night while he's died, before he dies. The night before Jesus' death, he's praying earnestly. Do you remember Jesus had been trying to get his disciples to pray with him all night? But what are they doing? Sleeping. Could you not pray with me one hour, but instead they're sleeping? Now, verse 6, they're praying earnestly all through the night here, the, the church, because after what happened to James, they know this is probably the end for Peter. This is the night of Peter's death. He's going to die the next day. There, there's no question about this. If he beheaded James, what's going to be different with Peter? Locking him up is just all, a, the trial is all a big show. Jesus' trial was a big show. James's trial was a big show. We've seen Paul's trials are big shows in the book of Acts. I mean, they're, they're not after justice here. They want to kill him. And on the eve of Peter's death, the church is earnestly praying, but what's Peter doing? Look at verse 6. He's sound asleep. I don't know how you sleep chained between two prison guards. But he must be exhausted. Um, some people think that that's a positive thing. Well, Peter's just so secure in God's love that he's just sleeping in a storm like Jesus did in the boat when he was sleeping in the waves. Um, I, I don't think that's what's going on here because of the connection to Luke 22 and the Gethsemane connection. I think Peter's given up hope, Okay. He doesn't expect to be delivered. Why would I think that from the story? Because he's shocked when he is delivered. Right? <laughs> he's still grieving the death of James, I'm sure. He knows it, this is it. Look at Luke 22. This is another book, remember, written by the writer of Acts, by Luke. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke 22. I'll give you a second to get there. Luke 22. Verses 42 to 46. Luke 22, 42 to 46. Jesus praying earnestly in the garden. Same word. It's not a word that Peter uses. It's not a word that Luke uses all the time. This is, there's only two places here and there. We read Jesus' prayer. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Peter should have been praying that, right? Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. 
Remember, who appears to Peter in prison? An angel. God is showing mercy to Peter, even though he's not praying. And being in anguish, Jesus prayed more earnestly. There's the word. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall up into temptation. Get up and pray, Peter. But now he's sleeping, and the church is praying. Now look at verse 7. God sends his angel. Just like an angel rescued Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fire of Babylon. Just like the angel of the Lord rescued Daniel from the lion's den of the king of Persia, so suddenly an angel of the Lord appears and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up. You're not praying, but I'm going to intervene. Team Jesus needs you, right? And the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you, follow me. And he walks out past all the guards. And finally, even though initially he doesn't think it's happening, he comes to his senses. Verse 11, he thought he was seeing a vision. But now he realizes this is the real deal. I'm free. God has delivered me from all that Herod and the Jews had hoped to do to me. I just want to pause and say, if, if Luke, the author of this, was trying to make this story up and paint a picture of a valiant Peter, the future Pope, uh, he's not doing a very good job. You have a sleeping Peter... He doesn't think he's going to be rescued. And in a minute, you'll have a surprise church who doesn't think God's answering their prayers, but he does, right? Like, if this is all made up, why would you tell the story about all your friends this way and make them look so bad? Unless it's the truth. So Peter hurries to the house of Mary where everyone's earnestly praying, just like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane was praying earnestly. And he gets there, and this little girl... Named Rhoda answers the door. We're probably not talking about a 20-year-old here. Probably a really young girl. Maybe the youngest servant in the house. It's like, there's a knock on the door. Go see who it is. <laughs> um, maybe they were worried. Nobody will haul off a little girl. Remember, Herod's been in the habit of arresting Christians. So... When Rhoda hears Peter's voice, she freaks out, runs back. It's Peter! <laughs> no! You're out of your mind, kid. She's like, no, really. It was Peter. And so then they're like, yeah, it was his guardian angel. Well, there was an angel. The angel's gone. Now it's Peter, okay? And he's there, and they're shocked that God answers their prayers. Peter quickly tells a story, and he tells another, it says, go tell 
James, this is another key leader. James, not the brother of John, but James, the brother of Jesus. James, who wrote the good letter of James in the New Testament. He says, tell James that I'm safe. And then he went to a safer place, and we don't know where he went. Now, Herod is struck down. That's point three today. Apparently, like I said earlier, Herod had been having issues with the city, cities of Tyre and Sidon. They'd been picking a fight with him, but now they need food, and Herod controls the food, so you better, you better uh, find a guy named Blastus to be your lobbyist and get you an audience with Herod so that you can have some food, because it turns out food is really helpful in famines. So Herod comes in, and they, he, he comes in with all his pomp and circumstance, all his royal robes, and uh, they call him a god. And he doesn't say anything about it. He should have. In Acts 14, the people of Lystra and Derbe call Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes. And then they try to sacrifice bulls to them. We'll see that story in a couple weeks. But the apostles unlike Herod, tear their clothes and refuse to be worshipped. Not Herod. You don't tear those royal robes. No, he basks in the glory of these, these people's praise. He'll take the glory of a god if it means that these people will be his servants. And so he was struck by an angel of the Lord. The word strike here, interestingly, is the same word used when the angel struck Peter. Same word. The angel strikes Peter and saves him. The angel strikes Herod and it ends his life. God can strike his people and rescue them while striking down their enemies. And the summary of what happens follows the phrase, the Lord struck him. So Luke explains after he says the angel struck him. Luke, the doctor, Luke was a doctor, a medical doctor. He explains why he died. Probably as a doctor, he'd be interested in the reason for this. He was eaten by worms, and he died. Now, as a kid, I pictured this kind of like an Indiana Jones style, like all of a sudden, Herod's got like worms crawling out every opening in his body and like oozing, and it's like, then he just tips over. Eh, that might be the case, but probably not. I don't have time to read this for us, but there is actually an ancient Jewish historian named Josephus. Anybody heard that name before? Josephus? Writing after the time of Christ. Not a Christian guy at all, but very valuable stuff. I've read a lot of Josephus over the years for various reasons. Not all of it. But he includes this story, not reading, not because he read the Bible and then wrote it down, but because this happened. He, he includes this story in his writings in a lot greater length. We get one verse about Herod being struck down. He describes Herod's garments and how fancy he was and the whole deal. And he says all of a sudden when they called him a god he was struck with great pain in his belly. So he has incredible belly pain. So much so that he topples over and has to be whisked away and later dies. And Luke gives the diagnosis of worms. Scholars that look back and say, what may this have been, think that this was a, a parasitical flatworm that attacks your urinary tract. 
It's a brutal way to go. Um, you can Google it later if you are brave. How did Herod die? <laughs> and so Herod himself, the king of Israel, he struck down, and it's all because he refuses to give praise to God. And he is the one striking the church, and God puts a stop to it. So he's killed while God's word spreads, which is the final thing to look at in this passage today. Verse 24 and 25. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned to Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. Remember, their mission was to bring money to the people in Judea, money from Antioch to the people in Judea who were suffering from famine. So this is kind of like a summary verse. They finished that, dropped off the money to help these people who are starving, these Christians, and they returned to Jerusalem, and John is with them. All right, so though Herod had tried to stamp out God's word, verse 24 says the word continued to spread and flourish. Now, these words are literally the words be fruitful and multiply. That's the words in Greek, if you were to translate it in a way that might make our minds go ding, ding, ding. If you translate it spread and flourish, that's okay. That's what it means. But if you say be fruitful and multiply, that's like a hyperlink word for a Christian who's read the Bible. You realize, you click on this and it takes you all the way back to Genesis what Adam and Eve were supposed to do. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Now God's word is doing that. Creating image bearers of God as people come to faith in Christ all over the ancient world, despite what Herod had tried to do. The Lord, as we read at the beginning, is able to rescue his people, defeat his enemies, and spread his word. This pattern, rescue his people, defeat his enemies, spread his word, is a famous pattern in the Bible's story. One place it really kicks off, before we go to application, we'll close with this, is the story of the Exodus. In the book of the Exodus, God rescues his people from captivity in Egypt. He does it by striking the Egyptians through his angel. And when God's people are delivered, the word of God's might spreads through all the land of Canaan as God's people continue to be fruitful and multiply. Even into Canaan, where the Israelites are headed, the word of God's might spreads. So, again, the Lord is able to rescue his people, defeat his enemies, and spread his word. But if the Lord is able to rescue, why does James get beheaded while Peter survives? Without any explanation in our story, one apostle is killed, one apostle is spared, which leads to a little bit of application. What does this mean now for our lives? First, the Lord is able to deliver his people, but even when he does not do so in this life, the victory is still ours. I don't know why James was chosen for death and Peter 
for life other than the simple fact that God's work on earth for James wasn't done yet, or for Peter was not done yet. What were some things that Peter still had to do? Well, um, first he had to write two wonderful letters of the New Testament, First and Second Peter, that we have. But eventually, Peter's time to die would come. Just like James, Peter too was actually killed for his faith. Jesus talked about it in the Gospels. He was crucified, as church tradition tells us, upside down. And all the other apostles died as well. Some brutally, some of natural causes. We all die. Some of us sooner than others. Some after great suffering, like we were talking about in the beginning. Some with relative peace and comfort. Every day on earth is a gift from God. And the promise of resurrection life and final victory in the new creation, that's a promise that we all, doomed to die, share. There's a famous story of a missionary named John Patton. He lived in the mid-1800s. He went to the island of New Hebrides and the South Sea with his wife Margaret to preach the gospel to a brutal tribe of cannibals, people who eat people. John Piper, biblical writer, pastor, writes in his biography, a biography about this guy. He says, over and over, this faith sustained him in the most threatening and frightening situations, his faith. As he was trying to escape from an island in New Hebrides, at the end of four years of dangers, he's trying to escape. He's been there four years trying to tell these people about Jesus, and now they're out to kill him. He's trying to escape. He and his native friend, Abraham, were surrounded by raging natives who kept urging each other to strike the first blow. All surrounding them, daring each other. Who's going to throw the spear first? Who's going to who's going to get him first? Patton wrote this about the experience. He said, "My as he's there, he says later, my heart rose up to the Lord Jesus. I saw him watching all the scene. My peace came back to me like a wave from God. I realized. Here's the quote I want to stick in your heads. I realized that I was immortal." Till my master's work with me was done. I realized that I was immortal until my master's work with me was done. He says, the assurance came to me as if a voice out of heaven had spoken that not a musket would be fired to wound us, not a club prevailed to strike us, not a spear leave the hand in which it was held vibrating to be thrown, not an arrow leave the bow or a killing stone the fingers, without the permission of Jesus Christ, whose is all power in heaven and earth, and who rules all of nature, animate and inanimate, and retains every savage of the South Seas. So John Patton clung to that hope, even as he faced death, and he didn't die that day. And in the same way, Jesus was totally sovereign over Herod, and over every intention of Herod's heart. And over today, every nuclear missile in this world, every gun, every bullet, every bomb, we are immortal until the master's work is done.
This is a great comfort for, for the people of God. Jesus is Lord. He's sovereign. We rest in his control. Two other short things. As we rest in the might of Jesus, let's be a people who pray earnestly and expectantly. In our story today, we saw glimpses of what you should not do. Sleep. Be apathetic in moments of great trial. I know my own heart in this. When I'm feeling really, really stressed, when I'm feeling pressures in ministry and life, anxieties washing over me, do you know what I want to do in that moment? Comfort, comfort me, oh sugar. Or, oh, the show we're watching. Right? And even last night, I'll be vulnerable. I, I had a long day. I did a lot of studying work last night, yesterday. At the end of the day, it was like 9.15, and I looked at Holly, and I was like, oh, I don't watch our show. We're watching this uh, interesting show on Amazon Prime. And she said, no, we should pray. I'm like, dang it. That's my sermon. And so I just, I want you to know, I'm sitting under the word too, okay? And I'm like Peter. I want to just sleep, comfort. I'm anxious. But Jesus is calling us to be earnest in prayer. When the crisis hits you, what do you do? Jesus gave us the example. Watch and pray, lest you not fall into temptation. And the final comfort here is that God will deal with enemies of the gospel. We don't need to freak out about them. They cannot stop the spread of his word. The risen Jesus can save Saul while he's trying to stamp out the church. The risen Jesus can put to death the wicked Christians like Ananias and Sapphira, so-called Christians, within the church to preserve the purity of the church. The risen Jesus can strike down a violent persecutor of the church like Herod. And the risen Jesus can and will receive the dying spirits of his saints like he received Stephen, who, as he's being stoned to death, said, Lord Jesus, into your hands I commit my spirit. And the Lord Jesus has the power to raise all bodies to life one day when he returns. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, into your hands we commit our spirits. Our bodies are yours. You are sovereign over us. You've made us. Every inch of this universe belongs to the risen Christ Lord Jesus, we pray that you would continue to advance your word through us as we seek to make you known in Granville and Whitehall and Hartford and to the ends of the earth. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.